today the title of the message is the financial commandments. We've got seven of them that we're going to unpack today. But what I'll say is this, just as a preface, I know people, I know lots of people who don't make much money, but are good stewards of the money that they have. Do you know some people like that? They're not the richest, wealthiest people, but they're good with their money. They're good managers of their money. How many of you raised kids and one was great with the money and the other one not so great? <laughs> okay, a couple of... Okay, I think, I think my wife and I, we have that dichotomy in our household. Uh, one who says she's just saving up for her college and her car and she just turned 13 and the other one who, as soon as she gets a dime to her name, it's burned by, you know, gummy bears and whatever else, okay? I'll let you figure out which one is which. Well, I told you the age, so I guess I gave it away. But I say that to say, I also know people who make a lot of money who are not good stewards. Have you heard about the people who win the lottery and then they're broke months and just a year later after winning the lottery? I mean, celebrities who find themselves addicted to drugs and filing bankruptcy after having made it big, they're not good with their money even though they've got a lot. So let me explain it to you like this. When we talk in this series about money, I want you to understand it's not about how much money you make or even how much money you give to the church. This is not a financial campaign for me to say, well, we really need to bolster up our giving it's so that God can help us live his way and we can be healthier financially, individually, amen? And we can see the blessing of having that life for our children and for our grandchildren. So our focus in a series like this is for you to have a healthy mindset towards finances and for you to become a good steward or to be a better steward. I know individuals in this church who are excellent stewards, but even those who are excellent stewards still have something to learn in the midst of this. So I'm going to tell you what a steward is. It's not the person on the airplane that gives you the chips and the peanuts, okay? A steward, and we've got a definition for you, a steward is a manager or a supervisor. The steward is not the owner, we talk about this in the first part of this series, that God is the owner, and when we recognize that, it gives us peace, and it actually helps calibrate our mindset as to finances. So God is the owner. We're not. We're just managing what he's given us. The louder you amen, the quicker these seven are going to come out. Amen? Amen. Amen. Very practical message. I encourage you to take notes. Here's number one. Put God first. Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 is part of the Ten Commandments. The first one, it says this, You shall have no other gods before me. This is God himself speaking to his people, giving them a set of rules, just basic ten things to live by. We base our justice system and all of the justice that we seek in the world today on similar principles that you can find in God's word. It was wrong then to murder. It's still wrong now. Hello? It was wrong to steal then and it's wrong to steal now. 
it's wrong to have any other God before him then, and it's wrong to have any other God before him now. Go with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. It tells one of my all-time favorite Bible stories. This story has captivated me since I was a child. I love this story. Um, I love to talk about it with my kids. I seem to find interesting and new things every time I come across it in Scripture. I want to share it with you this morning because it backs up point number one of putting God first. The background of the story is there's been a God-warranted, listen to me, church, a God-warranted famine and drought for three years. That's something that we should understand. God allows hardships in our life. Not every hardship is allowed by the Lord, created by the devil, or created by us. There's a mix of those things. But it's really important that we understand that there was a drought and a famine that God allowed to happen And then we pick up the story in verse 10. It talks about the prophet Elijah, and it says this. So he arose, according to God's word, God had told him to, and he went to a place called Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called out to her and said, bring me a little water in a vessel that I I may drink. So stop there and just remember the word famine and drought. He's asking for some water now that he may drink. Verse 11 says, and as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, "Mm, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Verse 12, and she said, as the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I've only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And now I'm gathering a couple sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son as our last meal that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of this woman, hearing the words of this man asking for water and for bread in the midst of moments of desperation. She has nothing left. She's literally gathering the sticks to light the last fire in order to cook the last meal. Jump down to verse 14. It says this. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour, this is Elijah speaking, shall not be spent, and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Verse 15, I feel this scripture this morning. And she went and she did as Elijah said. Now this is the second time the Bible tells us in this passage, she immediately obeyed. She did as Elijah said, and she and her household, the Bible says, ate for many days. The jar of flour, verse 16 says, was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. This miraculous provision 
was allowed and given to this woman as a direct result of her obedience. You, you can't prove otherwise. She obeyed the prophet and the word of the Lord, and God did as he promised to do. But I've often thought this. If you read the first part of the story, which we didn't, the first nine verses, it says that God told Elijah to go to the brook, C-H-E-R-I-T-H, Cherith, Sharith, however you want to say it. He tells him to go there and camp out. The Bible says that God sends ravens in the morning and in the evening to bring him meat and bread. He has water because the brook is there and the brook dries up and now he's going into town. Why didn't God send Elijah to a rich person? Surely there was a rich person in town that had plenty of water, plenty of oil, plenty of flour. I think we've got to be careful when we read scripture to understand it clearly. We really need to pray and say, God, give us understanding. Because we can look at this and see it as though God had sent Elijah to this woman so that she could provide for Elijah. But that's not the case. In fact, I believe God sent Elijah to her so that God could provide for her twice, not just food. Listen to me. The proof is later on in those verses of the story. It says that after this miraculous provision takes place, her household eats for days on end. Miracle, literally it's happening every day. They're pouring the oil out to make the bread and it's continuing to be there. But then it says her son dies. Elijah is still with them, and she gets very upset. <laughs> what have you done? What have you brought on this household that my son has now died? But God knew that her son was going to die. Do you believe that? God knew that her son was going to die. God didn't send Elijah to her just to provide milk, eggs, and bread for them to eat kind of thing. He sent Elijah to her to raise her son from the dead. God knew that her son was going to die. God knew that her obedience was going to lead to miraculous provision, but there was still something worse that was coming that God wanted to be part of the cure and the resolve and the solution for, and she needed to put God first. Here's what I'm saying. When you put God first in your life, you will live a blessed life. You may not be the richest person in the room, but you will live a blessed life. Commandment number two. And don't get it twisted. These are not commandments that are written by the finger of God in stone tablets, but some of them are borrowed from there with some financial uh, input okay, from the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20 verse 4 says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So don't worship material things. Verse 5 goes on to say, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Don't worship material things. Well, you say, Pastor, how dare you? I don't worship material things. I think we've all been guilty of this in our life at some point. 
How many of us have ever noticed what our neighbors have, and then we decide that it's probably about time that we get one? Right? I mean, well, honey, look at look at his new new car out there. I mean, our this old beater needs to get traded in, baby. We gotta, you know, keeping up with the Joneses is a real thing. You know, the they just installed a pool down the street, you know. I think that we should too. It's that whole idea of coveting, of envy, of jealousy. But we can get to the place where we end up worshiping material things and focusing a lot on those things, so much so that it truly becomes worship. And I'm telling you, you can listen to any common modern song today. And don't, don't you dare think, I'm going to look at you, Don Varner, don't you dare think, okay, well, the oldies were good songs, man, talked about love and wonderful things. They talked about materialism back then, too. 50s and 60s, absolutely they did. And I can go older than that, looking at some of you. Okay, but listen, modern times today, in the here and now, if you listen to a pop song on the radio, you know what they're going to talk about? They're going to talk about their possessions. They're going to talk about all the cool new things they've got. All the kids are then singing that song and thinking their girlfriend isn't the good quality girlfriend that they need. Their car isn't the good quality car that they need. And they're thinking that they've got to have all of these other things. And we live in this microwave society where it's like, well, why can't I have it yesterday? And we end up focusing ourselves on these material things. That's the food the current generation is feasting on. But we've been feasting on it for generations. God wants your needs met. This is a prosperity message. God wants your needs met. And sometimes you'll get some things you want. But God wants your needs met. He's not worried about getting you the nicest and the fanciest and the newest and all of that. If you write a check today for your tithes and you pray over it and you deposit it, give it online. God's not going to turn around right away and give you a brand new shiny Cadillac Escalade or whatever car it is that you think you want. That's not the prosperity we're talking about. We're talking about living a blessed life that involves God's peace in my home and in my mind, knowing that I'm not worshiping those other things, chasing those other things. Because here's what happens. What happens is if I do that, I then deprioritize God. And we've said this many times. If he's not first, he's not second, he's last. Matthew chapter 6, verse 26 Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? This is Jesus speaking. So he will give us some of the wants in our life, but when we cross that line and begin to seek those things, those material things, it turns to worship, and that is tragic for us. Listen to how Jesus talks about earthly possessions in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says this, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
In fact, I'm going to tell you this. If you call up your kid or your grandkid today and you ask them about what they remember from their childhood, what good thing they remember from their childhood, I'm going to guarantee you nine out of ten times they're going to tell you about an experience they had with you. They're not going to remember the Lego set. They're not going to remember the little remote-controlled car or the Barbie. They might remember the Barbie. They're going to remember that dad spent time with me. I remember going out and working in the garage with him. I remember shopping with mommy for Christmas presents on Black Friday. Whatever it is, like they'll have a memory that's attached. It's not about the material stuff. Amen? Can I get an amen? So, commandment number three, be a good steward. I want you to write this down. Put it in your phone. Write it on paper. All good stewards do these three things that I'm going to tell you. They spend wisely, they save diligently, and they give generously. Literally every good steward that I've ever met spends wisely, saves diligently, and gives generously. Amen? Matthew chapter 25, I want to show you um, a parable that Jesus gives about money. He talks about it in this way. In verse 15, he says, To one he gave five talents. This is talking about a man who owns a lot of property and he's leaving to go away for a time. And so he gives one of his servants five monies. Okay, five pieces of money. This isn't talents like gifts. It's a measure of monetary uh, substance. So to another he gives two. And to another servant he gives one. Each according to his ability. So the stupid one got one. And the wise one got five. Just stick with me. This is how I read the Bible, okay? And I'm just proud to be in that story, even if I am the stupid one. At least I got one, okay? But here's the deal. He gave five to one, two to another, and one to another. Then it says in verse uh, 16, that he, or the end of verse 15, he went away. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once to the dog track, the horse track, the casino, and gambled it. And no, he doesn't say that. What does it say? It says he traded with them. He went and bartered and bought and sold and whatever he did, he made five more talents. He didn't waste it. He didn't gamble it away. Verse 17, so also the one that had two talents made two talents more. Verse 18, but he who had received the one talent went, dug a hole in the ground, and he hid the master's money. Now after, he's stupid, okay, just, I'm just saying. Verse 19, now after a long time, the master of those servants comes back and settles up the accounts with them. Verse 27, jump there. The master is now talking to the servants, and he says this in verse 27. You ought to, to the one who had just the one, he says, you ought to have at least invested my money with the bank. So at my coming, I could have got a little bit of interest back. That would have been the smart thing to do. Verse 28, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has 
will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be stripped or taken away. God expects you to be a good steward. He expects you to be a good steward. That includes your time. That includes your gifts or abilities. And it includes your money. So, spend it wisely. Stay there. Spend it wisely. Save it diligently. And give generously. I had a buddy. I'll tell you this quick story. It's not in my notes. I hope it doesn't take very long. I had a buddy who uh, he sells insurance products. And um, he talked to me at some point last year and said, hey, what are you doing about your daughters uh, for their saving for college and for weddings? And I said, absolutely nothing. I'm broke as a joke. I don't have two pennies to rub together. I rob Peter to pay Paul from time to time. It just is what it is. He said, listen, I'm going to help you. And so he started to help. He said, listen, can you do X amount of dollars per month? Can we set it up automatically to go into this, whatever it's called, college savings, something, whatever. Here's the thing. Set it up automatically and you don't have to do it. It just does it by itself. It's awesome. But the whole idea is if we don't make a plan for the future, the future is going to bite you. It's going to slap you in the face. I want to help my daughter buy her first car. I don't want her to have to finance it herself. Okay. So here we go. Commandment number four. Teach your children and your grandchildren about money and possessions. Grandparents, I know I got you in the room. Grandparents love their grandkids. It's just awesome. They treat them however they want to and then send them back to mom and dad. It's, they, I hear it's a great life that you live as a grandparent. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing. You still have an opportunity as a grandparent to teach your grandchildren about money and about possessions. Sure, dote on them, spoil them, get whatever you couldn't have gotten before. Now you have the ability to do and you want to bless. That's awesome. But teach them lessons and principles from God's word about finances. Countless times in the Bible, we're instructed to raise our children in healthy and righteous ways. We're even given biblical examples of what not doing that, what the implications of not doing that is. When you don't teach your children the ways of God and righteous ways. So we want them to be able to manage their money wisely in the here and now. Have a healthy perspective of money. Because here's the deal. If you do this for your kids, they might put you in a nicer nursing home. (laughs) There's a benefit to you. Okay? There's a benefit here. But I'm telling you, if we can train them up in the way that they should go when it regards finances, it's going to bless their marriage, their spouse in the future. It's going to bless their kids. It's going to bless the church that they're part of in the future. It's going to reap so many benefits just teaching them the simplicity of tithing and saving and making sure that they are saving and spending according to God's way. Look at what Proverbs 22 verse 6 says. It says, train up a child in the way that he or she should go so that when they're old, they will not depart from it. Amen? Luke chapter 16, verse 13 says this, no servant can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other 
or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There are people that are career-driven. They're, they're all focused on getting the house and getting the things and trying to get everything lined up money-wise. They have no time for the church and for God and for their spiritual development. We cannot serve two masters. The Bible says it very clearly. You're going to hate the one and despise the one, or you're going to love and serve the other. So you get to choose. Is it God or is it money? Man, I could really get on a soapbox this morning about teaching our kids other things like participating in worship and being part of the family of God, encouraging them. It's not just an old school bygone thing to join together on a Sunday. It's something we've got to be doing and teaching them so they see that God is a priority and should be in their lives. Amen? Number five, see how fast we're going? Live on a budget. This is a six-letter curse word in my home. And it's not because my wife thinks it's a curse word. She's actually talked about it more than I have in certain times in our life. But live on a budget. The word budget doesn't appear in Scripture. There's not one of the Ten Commandments. It does not say live on a budget. But the principle is all throughout Scripture. How many of you remember the story of Joseph? Anybody remember the story of Joseph? He, had a, he interpreted a dream. He was promoted to leadership. Just get it in your head. He struggled and had hardships he faced. Even though he was doing everything right. Somebody needs to walk out of here with faith today, knowing that God is with them even in the storm. Because Joseph himself faced multiple storms. Storm after storm after storm hit this guy. But you know what he did? He budgeted the grain for an entire nation. So much so that during the time of drought and famine, there was enough to bless others outside of their own nation. That's an incredible, incredible testament to what a budget can do. And budgeting is a means of exercising self-control. Some of us struggle with that. How many of you would just be honest in the house of God and say, I struggle with self-control? Okay, good. I'm not alone. But here's the thing. Budgeting is emotionless. It's decided. It's not a, ooh, I really want this, and let me just get this. It's a, you know what? We don't have it in the budget this month. Let's do it next month. Or let's plan better, and three months from now, we can have it. Budgeting is exercising self-control. We do this with our kids. I don't know if you've done this with your kids, but it's an easy way out of spending money. It's great. Just tell, I'm just helping you. Today we're going to have a baby dedication. So I guess I feel like I'm giving parenting advice you know, throughout here. But we do this with our kids. I'm, I'm sorry, honey. I know that you want to go this weekend, but we don't have it in the budget for this month. If you'd like to, we can plan so that we go next month. But you're going to have to do some chores. You're going to have to save some of your money. And then we're going to put it in the budget for next month. You should see these girls acting like... Where is this budget? I want to kill it. <laughs> you know? My wife and I, we feel the same way. We just don't tell them that. Sometimes we want to do that too. 
I heard of a, a faith testimony of a pastor and his wife that were practicing this and they were living on a budget. Her hair dryer broke. Her hair dryer broke before Sunday church. And she came running into the room and she said, Honey, this is a necessity. I don't care. It's not in the budget. We have, I've got to have a hair dryer. And he said, do you have to have it for Sunday? And she said, I guess I'll just wake up early and I can towel dry it. It'll be all right. But I've got to have one this coming week. And he, he tells the story in such a way that he says, it's not that he wasn't going to provide it for his wife, but he took a moment and he just said a prayer. Lord, would you provide this? It's not in our budget. We're doing everything we can to be debt-free, to all this stuff, to live on a budget. They go to church that day. When they come home on their porch is the brand new top of the line hair dryer. They hadn't spoken a word to a single soul. And it was a loving neighbor who actually attended the church. She had not said anything to any of the women in the church. This is the days before cell phone. She didn't take a picture and say, look, my hair dryer's broke. I'm going to come to church looking like a mess. She, nothing like that happened. God provided a hair dryer. And that woman still attends their church to this day, 30 years later, and they get to share the testimony of how God provided because they stuck to it and they trusted him. That's a hard thing to do. My wife and I, we walk through that too. But stick to a budget. Live on a budget. Amen? In premarital counseling, we talk about this and ask um, couples. We say, are you a spender or a saver? And it's always really fun to see their reaction. Because they'll look at each other and then we'll figure out, okay, he's the spender, she's the saver, or vice versa. Sometimes they're both the saver. In worst case scenario, they're both the spender. <laughs> that means they got to find a money tree somewhere because they're both going to spend it. But live on a budget. We talk about that because we want to set them up for a win. Don't you want to set your kids up for a win? Don't you want to set your future up for a win, your grandkids? It's never too late to start a budget. You say, Pastor, I, you know, I'm past the point of needing to save for a, a car for my kid. Okay, fine. But you can still adopt a budget. And there's tons of tools and resources out there to help you. Number six is this. Live below your means. One person said amen. I don't... Uh, I, I have a hard time saying amen to this because I want to live above my means. Why can't I live above my means? Have you ever felt like that? You just, there are things that you want that are outside of the scope. Well, it is really nice that the neighbor got that brand new whatever. <laughs> Wish we could. But God wants us to live below our means in order so that we can build our faith and our trust in him. You know how much faith it took? I'm telling you, it didn't take faith like a mustard seed. It took a mountain full of faith for that woman in 1 Kings 17 to make her last bit of bread with that flour and that oil. Living below your means... If you live above your means, it's not sustainable. You ever heard the robbing Peter to pay Paul? You can only do that so long before Peter punches you in the face, okay? Because <laughs> Peter, Peter's going to come for his money, okay? 
you, it's, uh, it's, it's not sustainable. Relieving one debt in order to incur another one, it will lead to ruin. Maybe some of you remember that in your college days or your younger years that you struggled in that way. Maybe some of us are living in those college days and years right now. I'm looking at some college students. Here are two reasons why people live above their means. The first is this. You're not content. You, this is hard to talk about, but just deal with it. Take it with some sugar. But you are not content. Content means pleased or satisfied. And I think the reason that we're not content, pleased, satisfied is because we're filled with images, with advertisements, with music, with this world, with all the things around us that cause us to think, you know what? What I have is really not that great. I need a better one. And so it leads us to the place of not being content. You know what Paul says in Philippians chapter 4? He says in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. He's actually talking about finances in this whole passage. But he says this, for I've learned in whatever situation I find myself, I am to be content. So here's the thing. This is really cool. If you're not content and you're not thankful and you're not grateful, you can learn it. It's a learned behavior. Contentedness. It's a learned behavior. But the second reason why people live above their means is because you can't count. I told you it's going to be practical. How many of you are good at math? Raise your hand. High and proud. High and proud. Okay, look around the room. That's who you need to talk to. Okay? This, it's just like high school. Okay? You're going to have to either learn the math or get friends with, be friends with the person who knows the math. Okay? But the reason why people live above their means is because they can't count. I'll never forget Early days of Amy and I getting married and us sitting together and going, okay, this is the income and here are the expenses. And we're like, how are the expenses? Triple the income. This doesn't make sense. You know, like, okay, it's, we had to learn to count and had to learn how to, the, to figure some stuff out. So <clears throat> if that's you, there are classes you can take at the local junior college <laughs> to learn math or just plug it into a, a spreadsheet Figure it out, but live below your means. People are stressed out in this world. You've been stressed out financially. Every one of you, if you would admit it, there are some moments in your life that you have been beyond hope, depressed, in despair, financially, you've been worried, whatever the case may be. God wants to bring peace into your life. And the way he does that is through our obedience to live a little less than what we actually could so that we have the ability, here's the part, to bless others. Commandment number seven, don't be a slave. I'm going to tell you something which is probably not going to surprise you, and you may be guilty of it, so just try to not show any emotion, okay? I read a figure recently, though, that 80%, 80, 80, 80% of all American tax refunds are spent before they're received. You say, well, how, do, how does that happen? I mean, if you're waiting for the tax refund. People put it on the credit card, 
and they say, oh, I needed that new TV. I'm going to put it on the credit card. It's coming. It's supposed to be here by the end of the month. When it comes in, I'm going to pay the credit card. Then they don't. And then they pay something else or they spend it on something else and they incur additional debt. 80%. That means some of us in this room have been guilty of that. So they, they spend it on credit and then they don't pay the credit card back. They use it for other things. Listen to this. Published in February 2022, this year, the average American family credit card debt, be thankful if you're not in this category, is this number on the screen. The average American family has this much that they owe in credit card debt. And can I just tell you, it's not at 3%. It's not at 5%. It's probably 8%, 12%, 25%. Do you know there are lenders out there charging 25 and 29% on car loans and credit cards these days? Do you realize what that means? That means you paid triple, quadruple, five times the amount for it if you just pay the minimum and never get out of the, you know, paying anything outside of that. The total credit card debt estimated in March of this year for America alone is $807 billion. If you split that between the estimated 335 million, I'm not great at math. I had to do this calculation earlier. If you split that, that means that every living human being in America owes 25, estimate roughly, $2,500. That's crazy when you think about that. God doesn't want you to be a slave he doesn't want you to be in debt. In fact, we just read Proverbs 22, verse 6 that says, train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. Look at what verse 7 says. It immediately says this, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is slave of the lender. Now, don't get it wrong. Don't get it twisted. How many of you have a mortgage? Raise your hand. Okay. This is not, I'm not anti-mortgage. There are some extreme thoughts out there that you can't borrow for any reason and you got to pay cash for everything. I, I don't know where you stand on all of these things, but many of us just raised our hand about, yes, we have a mortgage. You pay an interest rate on. There are some things in this life you have to borrow for. I understand. If you waited to get $20,000 under your mattress in order to go buy a car for cash, you'd be waiting for a long time. I don't know what kind of job you have, but I think you'd be waiting for a long time. If you waited till you had cash for a house, it's not 1962 anymore. You can't get one for $1,900. You get one for $190,000, but you can't do that right away with cash. So I get it, but you better shop around. If you need a car that's more dependable than that 2005 Chevy Cavalier, Get one, but just get a smart interest rate. Hello? Hello? Come on. Think about it. Go one model year younger or older, I guess I should say, for the car. Wouldn't it be nice to have a 10,000 square foot home with like, you know, live-in help that did everything? It'd be great. But you know what I actually need? It's probably about 1,900 square feet. We need some things that we'll have to borrow for. But you've got to be smart because you don't want to be a slave. Don't borrow unless you have to. 
When you do pay on time, pay more than the minimum. Say, Pastor, this is really practical stuff. Yes. Talk about it with your grand. Hey, listen, I do this already, Pastor. We're in a, we've got a great financial picture. Great. Share that with other people, the knowledge of it with other people. Talk to your kids and your grandkids. Help them with it. Work toward being debt-free. I know my wife and I, we've struggled to do that times at times through our marriage to work to be debt-free. It's tough, and then stuff comes up you didn't expect. Gotta, ha- gotta have something you just do. But here's the thing. If you trust the Lord, he will always come through. I've told this story countless times. Don't fall asleep if I tell it right now and you've heard it already. I can remember my parents falling on hard times. We lived in what I think was a double wide trailer, but I'm told it was actually single wide on an orange grove in somewhere central Florida. My dad was working at a restaurant. He was trying to cook and make ends meet. My mom was taking care of us. We had dogs to take care of. Um, we had strays you know, that ran around the orange grove. We had all these things. So there are 13 dogs, okay? My, my daughter Brighton would have loved this. <laughs> I'll, I'll never go back to a, a day like that, but there are 13 dogs that we were taking care of. On a rainy night during a storm, God put it on the heart of a woman who was shopping in the grocery store to start putting in her cart things that she didn't even eat. She said the Holy Spirit helped her pick out these groceries. She didn't have a dog. We didn't know her from church, anything. God put it on her heart. She loaded up those groceries and drove until the Lord told her to stop. At the entrance to a little orange grove in central Florida, she knocked on the door in the middle of this chaos of our own lives, not having financially what we needed. They'd applied for assistance or food stamps, didn't have it or hadn't gotten it yet. And this woman opens up the trunk of her car with enough food for 13 dogs and for cookies and crackers and fresh fruit and meat and vegetables and potatoes. I'm telling you something. That changed my perspective. That night, I might have just celebrated and sat there with a smile on my face, eating an Oreo, thinking, wow, this is great. But that testimony has stayed with me throughout my life to know that God cares. He cares for you. He cares for me. And he will take care. Amen? We've got to trust him. We've got to walk with him. All right. You can close your notes, close your Bible. I want to pray over you today. We're going to close our service a little differently. We won't have the worship team come up because we've got a baby dedication to do right now. But I want to pray over you. A prayer of blessing over your home, your life, your finances. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the leading of the Holy Spirit to lead us through a series like this. To help us to get a healthier perspective, a better mindset, but also to become better stewards of what you've given us. Lord, there are some principles in your word that we looked at today that I pray that each of us will take to heart and that we will practice. Lord, I pray a blessing 
over the finances of every individual who hears this message. Lord, I pray as they honor you and they put you first, I pray that you would bless them with everything that they need. And I pray by the Spirit of God, you would prove yourself faithful, show yourself strong in those who are needing, who are in a place of suffering or in a place of lack or want. Lord, I pray that abundance would be theirs. Lord, that they would have so much that they would share with others. God, I pray you would bless Celebrate Church and everyone who calls this church home. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray.